two weeks before Christmas, 1974, someone walked into the home of young Doug and Beverly Smith and shot Beverly in the back of the head, killing her in cold blood. The couple's 10-month-old baby, Rebecca, was in the crib in the next room. Beverly's case was Durham Police Department's first, and now its oldest, unsolved murder. Two people confessed to the murder. Numerous were suspected, and one was even charged and then acquitted. All this, and we are still not any closer to knowing what really happened to Beverly Lynn Smith. But let's see if we can unravel this tangled web. I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. On the morning of December 9th, 1974, Doug Smith recalled that he and Beverly had gotten up early to visit a home that they were interested in purchasing. After viewing the home, they ran some errands and then headed back to their home in Oshawa, Ontario. Doug washed up and took a short nap before heading into work. He was working the night shift at the local GM Motors plant in Oshawa. He remembers backing out of the driveway, and as he looked back towards the house, he saw Beverly in the window waving little Rebecca's hand as Daddy left for work. It was the last time that he would ever see his wife alive. Later during the night when Doug gets a smoke break, he calls home to check on his wife and baby, and he did often since Bev hated being alone all night. The phone rang and rang and rang, but no one picked up. Another young couple who had just had a baby lived next door to Doug and Bev and they had become quick friends. Linda and Al Smith, believe it or not, yes, more Smiths. And although they share a last name with the victim, they are not related. They were the next to receive a call from Doug. When Linda answered, Doug explained himself and then asked if Bev had perhaps stepped over to their house. But Linda and Al, who had just arrived home a few minutes earlier, hadn't seen Bev all evening. So Linda volunteered to walk across the street and check on the young woman. When she walks over, she finds that the doors are locked and she peeks through a window. It's then that she spots Beverly lying on the floor with a pool of blood around her head. She runs back to her house and tells Doug to come home immediately, then hangs up and calls an ambulance. Al Smith, who at the time was working for the local Humane Society, jumps in his work truck and pulls it into the driveway of Bev and Doug's home and throws on his beacon flashers on the work van in hopes of assisting the ambulance to find the house. When help arrives, the kitchen door has been smashed through. Al claimed that he did it so the men could get in, and they quickly realize that Bev is already gone. Police are notified and detectives brought in. By the time Doug arrives home, his house is surrounded by officials and onlookers. Baby Rebecca was still in her crib, entirely unharmed. This case was the first homicide for the newly formed police department there in Ottawa, and on this night, the responding officers were said to have been coming from a company Christmas party, and they reeked of booze. They reportedly contaminated the crime scene. For example, an officer put out a cigarette in her ashtray. And they failed to collect witness statements, and they lost key evidence. During the following investigation, it is revealed that Doug was a small-time pot dealer at the time and that six ounces of marijuana was the only thing stolen from their house. They had many friends and associates, and many people who would come to the house to buy from Doug. 
According to Bev's family, she was growing uncomfortable with the dealing and was trying to get him to stop. At the beginning of the investigation, this was believed to be a motive, and Doug was thoroughly investigated, but ultimately cleared. His alibi being that he was on the line at the factory at work. Several men were brought in and questioned, but the case quickly went cold with very little physical evidence to go on. Then Detective Leon Lynch, the lead investigator on the case, finally caught a break when going back through witness statements and interviewing neighbors. When they interviewed Al, he retracted the fact that he kicked the kitchen door during questioning. He said he didn't touch the doors and that it had to have been one of the paramedics. He then submitted to a polygraph test and the case began to spiral out of control. Linda Smith, Al's now ex-wife, is brought in and ends up changing her story, saying maybe Al wasn't home all night? Linda had become involved in religion at this point, and that is what drove the wedge between the two. Since Al wasn't interested in changing his lifestyle, it ultimately led to their divorce. Linda became close friends with a woman in her church named Janet Hales. Janet ends up sort of coaxing Linda to talk about that night and is even employed by the police at some point and becomes a tool for them to feed information to and from Linda. Now, another man was also brought in. His name was Dave Monder, who Al was friends with back in 1974. He's interviewed and he claims that Al went to Beverly's house the night of the murder and got an ounce of pot that night. Another statement that has changed many times in the last 10 years, mind you. Linda was arrested and charged with obstruction of justice. She had claimed in 74 that they were together all day the day of the shooting, which apparently was a lie. Linda is being fed tidbits of information by the police through Janet, and that's how she hears of Dave's story. All this together gets Linda to change her story again. After nine hours of interrogation, she claims Al did go to Beverly's that night to get the bag of pot for Dave, and she was claiming that he had a gun with him when he went over there. She said she saw him carrying a rifle and saw him put it back in his truck when he walked back to their house. That led to an arrest in March of 2008. Al is now held on second degree murder charges. Linda then claims she has some kind of mental block caused by trauma and that's why she can't seem to recall what actually happened. So again, police employ, who else? Janet Hales, Linda's friend, to get Linda to quote unquote, confess what she knows about the night of the murder. This time the story goes as follows. Al went over to get pot, but she walked over after him because he was taking too long at Bev's and she was beginning to get suspicious because she thought Al had a crush on Bev. So she claims she walked in and saw them standing together in the kitchen and made a quick assumption that something devious was going on. She grabbed the rifle, which Al had carried over and was now laying in the doorway, and she herself shot Bev in the back of the head out of jealousy. Then. Al got rid of the gun later that night, and in May of 2008, she took police on what would turn out to be quite the wild Canadian goose chase. So first off, they are unable to locate the gun, so she again changes her story. So guess who? Oh, Janet Hales comes in again and gets Linda to talk about the murder, again, offering her friendship for the truth as an ultimatum this time. 
Just FYI, this conversation couldn't be used in court since it was obtained illegally. Police had filed all the paperwork correctly, but forgot to get permission from the hospital to allow the proceedings. So anything gathered most likely would have eventually been tossed out. So now we're back to Al was the one who killed Bev. They got home. Doug called. Al walked over to Bev's with a gun. Linda follows because she was worried. She knocks, goes in with Al, and he shoots her in the back of the head because she refuses to give him the marijuana that he came for. She runs home in time for the phone to ring. It was Doug calling to check on his family. That's the story, and everyone's sticking to it. At least for now. But in the summer of 2008, the story was in the headlines again. The court had withdrawn charges against Al Smith since the case was built only on Linda's testimonies. There was no physical evidence at all to suggest that Al killed Beverly. The emotional torture that Linda Smith was put through was not revealed until years later. Janet eventually stopped talking to Linda since she didn't believe that she was telling the truth anyway. Dave Maunders, the guy who wanted to buy weed that night, also kept changing his story, so his testimony wasn't viable. He also still had beef with Al and didn't like him, so he had reason to lie. But lead detective Lynch was sure that they had the right man. They just needed the right evidence. So five months after Al's murder charges were finally dropped, the Mr. Big Sting is approved. A Mr. Big Sting is when police set up a fake illegal crime ring and have their target participate in illegal activity that is increasingly worse until they back the person into a corner where they are forced to confess. It's a Canadian-born tactic, and it's illegal in the US, the UK, and Germany. Many believe it elicits false confessions, and others believe it's a go-to tactic when everything else has failed. So here's how the sting went down. Danny, I'm using quotes here, who is actually an undercover officer, befriends Al and tries to earn his trust during a perfect trip that Al just happened to win. Of course, right? It was all set up by police. And for the next six months, everything in Al's life is a lie. The people are undercover officers, the money, the drugs, the guns he sees over the next few months, all fake. Any situation he is in is staged and everyone he meets is an actor. This Danny character becomes such good friends with Al that Al even says, I love you, bud, at the end of their phone conversations. And after a few long secluded trips where the men confide their darkest secrets, Danny starts dragging Al around to help in small drug deals that get increasingly larger and more dangerous. Al helps because the money is good and Danny is now his only friend. He is eventually introduced to a man named Jack, who is the Mr. Big in this presented scenario. And he's a mob boss type, a head honcho with lots of money and connections. Al does a few deals with Jack and Danny. Then one night, Danny shows up at Al's door at 2 a.m. saying Jack needs them. They meet with Jack who is covered in blood and saying that a situation went wrong and he had no choice. He reveals the dead body wrapped in a tarp in a truck. Danny and Al load it into Danny's truck and Jack tells them to get rid of everything and then meet him at a secluded cabin that he owns when it's all done. During this entire interaction, you can hear how much stress Al is in, even telling Danny not to talk to him until he can calm down. He is now clearly shaken and he wants out. At the cabin, Jack pressures Al into confessing a secret so he'll have dirt on Al since Al now knows this information about him. 
after several failed attempts, including two confessions, two confessions that did not fit the narrative they were looking for, Al finally says what the men want to hear. He claims he did this because he thought Jack was a mob boss who wanted to blackmail him and he had no idea if this man could harm his family. So he lies and tells him that he shot Bev and has been keeping it a secret ever since. Interesting to note that he still gets key details about the murder completely wrong, along with giving the motive that he went to steal 40 pounds of marijuana, okay? Doug never had that much pot in his house. But Al had done a 40 pound pot sell with his buddy Danny a few days earlier. So naturally, Al Smith is arrested again after the Mr. Big Sting. He is now charged with first degree murder. When he is arrested, Al is worried about Danny and asks detectives to get him out. <laughs> the truth is revealed to him and his world is shattered. He remained in prison from December of 2009 to July of 2014. However, a motion to exclude the confession was filed by Al's defense team, arguing his right to remain silent was violated when he was recorded. The confession was coerced, and that he was too emotionally involved and dependent on the relationship that he had developed with this Danny character. A judge ultimately decided in July of 2014 to exclude the confession from court, saying, quote, information obtained in this manner would shock the sense of trial fairness to Canadian society. End quote. So the Crown had no case and the charges were dropped. All of Beverly's sisters are convinced that Al is indeed the one who killed Bev and they believe his confession about killing her was real. A month after the case was dismissed, stricter laws were put into place regarding Mr. Big Stings and how they're conducted. And in 2016, Al and his legal team filed a $19 million lawsuit against the police department and the Crown, and there has yet to be a ruling announced. And Beverly's case, of course, is still unsolved. Sandu fam that is the case the story um at least so far i guess of beverly lynn smith it's hard to believe that um there's still so much to be discovered in this case um well at least hopefully um i know this case happened in 1974 as i mentioned at the beginning uh you kind of lost track it went all the way you know um al was in prison up until 2014 so there was a lot going on he wasn't in prison the entire time he was imprisoned in 2008 till 2014 but still um but it begs the question like who did this right i, I feel like we have all this mix up and it's like I know this was the the police the local police department's first homicide um, in 1974. This new established police department they were celebrating that day with a Christmas party. They were intoxicated, whatever. But it's almost like they 
they ruined this. They they destroyed this whole case from the beginning. Like, it, it, I don't see this case ever being solved because of the way it was mishandled so, so long ago. And then now you have the confusing testimonies, you have this and that, and then you couple that with faulty memories that people tend to have. And like again, this happened in the 70s. There are no ring doorbell cameras. There are no cell phone pings. There are nothing like that to go off of. Um, apparently, there was not even DNA collected at the scene. So it, it's, will this case ever be solved? I seriously doubt it. But if I had to sit here and make a suggestion or to make a, a decision on who did this, uh, God, it's damn near impossible. I, I guess I'm going to have to go with, um, what about the other guy, right? What about the guy who wanted weed that night? What about Dave? What if Dave broke in to instead, well, maybe he showed up to buy weed, right? Realized um, that Doug was at work. So Dave decided, I'll just take all of it then. And um, Bev was there to try to stand in the way, and he shot her. He killed her. Who knows? Um, and then left, and then Al was left to discover the body, pick up the pieces. But there are so many versions of the story where Al goes over there to, to get the weed and not Doug, which is weird, right? Where Al and... I'm sorry, and not Dave. Dave was the one who wanted to buy the weed, um, but it seemed as though he wanted Al to go pick it up for him, or maybe that was just an easier way of explaining himself out of the situation. If he said, you know, I never went into the house, it was all Al, Al went in, blah, 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 and this and that, um, then maybe, maybe, I don't know. And then you also have the testimony of Al's wife, who is also saying the same thing, saying that Al went over. Al went over to check on it. Al's van was in the parking lot. He had a shotgun, he had a, or he had a rifle and all this, but the gun was never found. If he had the gun in his van, he put it back in the van. It wasn't there. Um, so there's just, there's just so much going on here, um, but it does seem as though it was, as petty as it seems, it was related to the marijuana somehow. Right? That was the only thing stolen from their house. It was like somebody was trying to make a point. Maybe. Now, a lot of these small-time dealers will sometimes, you know, get fronted their their product up front. And then they are to sell the product and then give their dealer the cut, right? We've all seen Friday. Well, in this case, in this scenario, maybe Doug was behind. Or maybe Doug was smoking the stash. Who knows? Right, and they come to collect. He didn't have it. They sent him a message by killing his wife, which is pretty fucking intense for a pot dealer, in my opinion. Um, but then took all of the marijuana as well. So it had to be somebody who knew where the marijuana was stashed as well, right? And that would put a little bit more blame, a little more focus on Al and you know the rest of the neighbors the other smiths al smith his wife and then also we have to consider old dave maybe al and dave were in it together and didn't want to give each other up you know no snitching type of deal who knows but either way what they did to al during the investigation setting up this whole mr big sting and fucking with his emotions and all that that is uncalled for. Like that type of shit can it's <laughs> it's easy to understand why this Mr. Big Sting is illegal in the US and in the UK and in Germany. 
in all these other countries um, because it's just flat out wrong. If you put someone in the right situation, you you put their back up against the wall, they're literally to, they're they're literally going to say anything. We've seen this time and time again in coerced confessions in true crime. They will literally say anything with their backs against the wall, right? So you you have to take all those confessions with a grain of salt. Um, this reminds me of some experiments um, done by um, Darren Brown. If you guys haven't looked into his work, check him out. He's an English illusionist. Um, this is a little bit from his Wikipedia profile. It says, Darren Brown is an English mentalist, illusionist, painter, and author. He began performing in 1992, making his television debut with Darren Brown Mind Control in 2000, and has since produced several more shows for stage and television. Okay. Now, this mind control show that he does is very much like the Mr. Big Sting. Um, what he does is he targets one person and basically um, infiltrates their entire lives, their entire world. For instance, um, he took one man, um, a white man, I believe he was from Florida, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but this man was terrified of heights, for one, and he was also... A racist. He was extremely racist towards Hispanic people. And so Darren approached him and he was like, basically, I can get rid of your fear of heights. That's kind of how he kind of introduced this whole idea. But without spoiling too much, he ends up having this man do something insane at the end of this show, at the end of this whole, this whole movie that he basically let this man play in he didn't even realize he was being everybody in his life was an actor and this man does something amazing that no racist would ever do by the end <laughs> by the end of this show it's definitely uh worth checking out but that reminds me a lot of this and and i also i, I mean i don't i'm conflicted with what darren brown does even though he gets um you know quote unquote confirmation he gets uh um permission from these people, right, that are involved, but he often lies about the goal of the entire thing, much like the Mr. Big Sting, right, except for it's not um, prison or life and death situations like the Mr. Big Sting uh, seems to promote. So, uh, but very similar, very similar, and you can see if, you, if you're unaware, if you think, oh, like, this could never happen to me, if, if you know, I would realize if people in my life were actors, please check out Darren Brown, Mind Control, um, and it will change your perception. It's definitely worth the watch. I'm not even sure where you can watch it anymore. Um, but you know, it's, it's the internet age. You can find it somewhere, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, so what they did to Al was awful. The Mr. Big Sting, all of that shit. But on the other hand, if Al didn't do it, who did it? Who the hell did it? Who was there? Who was in that window of time? Who knew that Doug was a pot dealer? Who worked with him? I don't know. I don't know. And then even the crazy story, right, um, of Al's wife admitting admitting to shooting Bev at one time during her initial confession. That's, that's literally what she confesses to. The fact that she goes in, she sees them together, and shoots Beverly out of jealousy. And now imagine this. Let's say this does happen. And then Al doesn't want his wife to go to prison, Right? They have a newborn baby at home as well. Maybe he covers for her. Or maybe that's why there was never any physical evidence tied to him. Was because 
Maybe he wasn't there at all. Maybe his wife, Linda, was the culprit all along. Maybe she's the one that pulled the trigger, and that would explain why they can't put uh, Al at the scene. And that would also explain why she, why she nervously confided in her friend Janet with this first confession. I don't know. Seems crazy, but that would explain a lot, I think. And it makes a lot more sense um, for Linda to want to kill Bev at this point. It does. And um, Linda was the first one to answer the fall phone when Beverly's husband, Doug, called. She was the first one to go find Beverly's body. So, I don't know. This, If this couple is not involved, then it's got to be random. It's just freaking random other than that. And and that's a possibility. There's a lot of people coming and going from this resident, this residency. Um, he kept six ounces of pot on him, which, you know, for a small time dealer, you could get a lot of, you could get a lot of, uh, a lot of frequent business throughout the week, depending on how much your, your clients buy and whatnot. There could be a lot of people. Maybe, maybe Doug just let the wrong person in his house one too many times. Who knows? But, you know, more so than most weeks, I am really interested to hear what Lauren has to say. So, uh, without further ado, let's jump into this week's Lauren Synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here, here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. The unsolved murder of Beverly Lynn Smith from 1974. And the unsolved murder of Beverly Lynn Smith is actually the name of an Amazon docuseries that was released in 2022. It's four parts, and I watched all of it just to do this synopsis. You're welcome. So let's get into it. In 1974, Beverly Lynn Smith was shot in the back of her head in her own home in Raglan, near Oshawa in Ontario, Canada. And her 10-month-old baby, Rebecca, was found in the other room, unharmed, thankfully. But her husband, Doug, was at work at his factory. He checked, he clocked in, had a solid alibi, which some would later argue against and say that one of his friends could have clocked him in and someone saw him jumping a fence and yada, yada. I don't buy it for a second. I think Doug was, in fact, at, at work. Um, that being said, Doug likely played a role in her murder not intentionally, but he was apparently selling allegedly large quantities of marijuana, which may have brought some unwanted attention. And allegedly Beverly was not a big fan of these goings ons within the home with their baby selling large amount of drugs. How you feel about pot or not is, you know, neither here nor there, but still selling large quantity quantities of it out of your home with a baby um, especially in the seventies when it was more frowned upon and you couldn't just go, people couldn't just go to a dispensary like they can now and buy it in most States. Um, Vegas for sure. Um, it, it brought some, uh, unneeded attention and Oshawa by all accounts, from what I've heard was a little bit of a rough town at the time. I don't know how it is nowadays, bit of a rough town. There were some roughnecks out there and may have brought 
some, you know, some darkness upon their home and may have caused this murder. And so through 1974 and 1975, the police investigated the killing and unfortunately were unable to narrow down a strong suspect and the case went cold. They obviously looked at the husband. He had a solid alibi and there just wasn't much to go with. And so the case went cold until 1986 when there was some clues that came about and they actually arrested someone in 1988, Doug Daigle, who was a drug dealer. This is the guy, if you're asking me, who I think was the most likely to have done it. And apparently PCP was going on at the time and this guy was doing PCP. And at one point in interrogation, he mentioned that he could have done it. That was brought up in the documentary. He had motive to do it. Um, money, drugs, having been on drugs himself and stuff stronger than marijuana. Um, very easily could have done it. Um, to get, I guess there was what, six ounces of marijuana missing from their bedroom. Um, that was, there's your motive right there. Even though most of the house was untouched, the kitchen was untouched aside from Beverly's body laying on the kitchen floor. There's your motive. Um, but of course the police wanted the easy target. They wanted the neighbor across the street who actually, along with his wife, phoned the police and put on siren lights on his truck to draw the police in. Why would you do that if you were why would you draw more attention and get the police there even quicker if you had done this? In my opinion, that's one that was the first red flag as to like this guy didn't do it. Um, and then when you bring in the polygraph test, which I hate, I despise. The more I learn about true crime and the more cases I study, the more I hate the polygraph test because it just seems like it's so it's just so poorly done so often and it's so indecisive and inconclusive. And and oftentimes they the polygraphed expert tells the the detectives like well, he could have been deceitful on this and they just run with that because that's what they want to hear, of course. And then they go, well, there's some cat, some doubt now cast onto this character according to this machine and therefore he did it and let's basically drill him um, and do whatever it takes, including a very dirty uh, sting operation called Mr. Big Sting, which has now been banned uh, in Canada, the U.S. Um, and it involved some pretty impressive acting on the part of detectives and other people in a very elaborate and extensive drawn out long game of earning this guy's trust. The neighbor across the street, Alan Smith, no relation to Beverly, just happened to have the same last name and live across the street. They just got their sights on this guy because, you know, he was a little bit of an odd duck and a, a weird character. And then his wife didn't help very much by kind of degrading his character as well, but they gain his trust um, they get some guy to be his friend and go fishing with him and all this stuff. And then they get him involved in this fake drug operation where he's making easy money, selling pot to other drug dealers. There's a fake murder that takes place. You know, all of this after listening to this and they get him through fear and coercion to admit to this fake drug dealer, basically with a gun to his head, not, you know, more, uh, more hypothetical gun than actual, but I mean, nonetheless, he's in the room with a guy who is supposedly very dangerous, already killed someone. They had to get rid of this body for this guy, supposedly, which is all fake. It turns out he didn't know this. He thinks this guy is seriously dangerous and he's willing to kill him if he doesn't give him something worthwhile. Therefore, what would you do? I'm, I'm asking myself watching this. I would absolutely say some shit like this. If it comes down to, I'm trying to survive the next five minutes with this guy that would easily kill me and not even think twice, supposedly is what I'm thinking. Um, 
I would tell him some shit like this. I'd be like, who do I know that was killed? Oh, my neighbor across the street was killed. I can just tell this guy I did that. It was well known in this town, this murder. It was well known that I was across the street from her. It's just an easy out. And they knew it. That's why they set this whole thing up. So, of course, um, they get that audio of him saying that he did that for him trying to just save his own ass in the moment. They use it against him. He ends up spending over four years in jail awaiting a trial. And thankfully, the judge decided that this shit was dirty because it was, threw it out. Um, and unfortunately, we still don't know who did this because they focused all their energy, their time, their tax dollars on the wrong guy. And I think many people involved knew all along that this was unlikely the actual killer. Um, but they just went along with it. And that's a, a lot of problems with everything we in our societies these days is people just go along with shit for a dollar or whatever and they have no morals and scruples and they just do it. Um, so unfortunately someone like, uh, Doug Daigle who not Doug, yeah, Doug Daigle, who was the drug dealer who I think was much more likely. They just turned their attention away from this guy. Uh, I can't say definitively did it, but I think he was a much more strong, a much stronger suspect than, uh, the old guy across the street. Um, so Alan Smith, yeah, he spent many years uh, being hated. And I think it's really unfair. Uh, you know, obviously, Beverly's family members, including her twin sister, they they lost someone very close to them and they're hurting. They've been hurting for, what, over 40 years. I get that. But at the same time, to sit here and say definitive statements like, I would never confess to a murder that I didn't do. It's It's honestly just, it's naive and it's, um, kind of ignorant in my opinion, and I'm sorry for their loss, but at the same time, like you don't, you don't know that you can't say that because it happens. It's happened many times, many times people have confessed to a murder they didn't do under pressure. We've seen it time and time again. And also this is a different kind of pressure. Like I think not only would people do it, but most people would have done what Alan did in that situation where you think you could be killed if you don't give this guy what he wants. That's the scenario they created. And so for her to say that, I would never admit to that. You don't know that. I'm sorry. You just don't. And so, yeah, it was messed up. And unfortunately, the real killer is still out there. But crazy case. We easily could have done this on True Crime, guys. There's plenty there. Um, but uh, I can't wait to hear Michael's take on it on this episode. And that's my thoughts. Hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next week. All right, Lauren, thank you for that synopsis. As always, uh, very well thought out, and I appreciate you watching that whole documentary. Um, of course, it is linked in the show sources below. Um, the full, I think it's four-episode documentary on this Beverly Lynn Smith murder. Um, but we pretty much covered it. It was our main study source for this for this episode. Um, but if you guys like to put faces with names and kind of get a little more insider information, feel free to do that. Um, guys, if you enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy the retelling of these stories, please consider supporting supporting True Crime Guys productions at patreon.com slash Guys, where for just five bucks a month, you guys can get access to everything we create. We create multiple shows a week, um, if you're unaware. Uh, on the free platform of True Crime Guys. New episodes come out every single Wednesday, and of course they come out on Mondays here on Strange and Unexplained. But if you join Patreon, you'll also get Strange Shorts with me and Andy every single Monday. Every fourth episode is released on the free platform if you want to go and check those out and see how those are. Um, but they are released every single Monday on Patreon.
as well as early releases of these episodes. You can get them on Thursday instead of waiting till Monday. And then you get Just the Banter with me and Lauren, where we sit down and answer some listener questions. And sometimes we ask our listeners questions and kind of give our own feedback and opinions on that. Um, as well as Lauren, he does a five-minute murder show, which typically involves some case uh, that has gone cold for a long period of time and was finally solved by some sort of DNA or uncovering of evidence um, in more recent times. And all of these shows, aside from this uh, strange, unexplained proper, are in video format. So the True Crime Guys uh, free episodes that really come out every Wednesday, you can catch them on our YouTube channel. Look for the True Crime Guys YouTube channel. There is a link below. You can click the True Crime Guys link tree and click YouTube. And guys, if you will, go subscribe. You can kind of put faces to names if you'd like to do that. And uh, also, it's just a little more in-depth experience over there on YouTube. You get to see pictures of what we're talking about on True Crime Guys. Uh, you know, the, co- the, the culprits that we're making fun of, the crime scenes, all that kind of good stuff. All right? Again, that's patreon.com slash true crime guys and if you get a chance wherever you listen uh if you can rate a review of course that helps the show hit that subscribe button as well follow whatever it is if you're on spotify and uh we appreciate that very much guys all right again links to everything true crime guys are right below the description of this episode all right we appreciate everything that you do to support the show even if you're just listening every week all right well until next time guys be strange Just don't be strangers. See ya. You hush your mouth, boy.